Welcome to the Nations Church Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Last week I spoke a message called The Posture of Encounter is Humility. How many of you were here for that? If you, yeah, four of you were here. The rest of you that weren't, all, that, all 500 of you, just uh, make sure you get on the YouTube clip and, um, and catch up on that. I think that's a vital posture. Humility is a vital posture. If you want to encounter Jesus, it's pretty much nigh on impossible to encounter Him when you're proud. Um, The Bible says God resists or pushes away the proud. Think about that. God resists. He doesn't just ignore. He resists. I don't want to be on the receiving end of a resistant God of the universe. Amen. So today is kind of like a little bit of a part two. Um, So today's message will either lift your faith or make you mad at me again. YK is a good boy at Hotmail.com. Only got 17 emails this week. So let's see if we can top that crack 20 this, this week. Matthew chapter 15, reading from verse 21. Who's ready for the Word of God? Punch someone and say, are you ready? All right, it says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region, so non-Jew, came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. You're intrigued that sometimes Jesus is silent. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Really loaded response. Verse 25. Then she came, in other words, she came again and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. (gasps) And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Can we give Jesus a big shout of praise for an incredibly powerful text? Thank you so much, Crystal. Did you guys know Crystal could play the piano? Just incredible. So this is both a highly misunderstood as well as a highly controversial but incredibly powerful text out of the book of Matthew. It accounts for an interaction between Jesus and not just a woman but a Canaanite, non-Jewish woman. Again, lots of cultural context, lots of nuances, lots of things about the way Jesus spoke to this woman that we would probably struggle to get our heads around not not having lived in the first century in the Palestine region, right? But today I want to I wanna revelate with you a little. Is that okay? I want to unpack this passage of Scripture, and I want to speak to you on the posture of encounter, faith. I'm going to do some flat-out teaching today. Is that okay? I'm not here to play games. One week out from conference. Let's go, right? See, in an era where we're living in modern-day, 21st-century world, faith can be a bit of a dirty word because we trust the science. So we live in a world where even in Australia, we were once a God-fearing nation, but now no longer. And when we speak about faith, it's time even, I think, prophetically to restore the true meaning of faith back into the house of God. Not just the meaning of faith, but the posture of faith. Turn to someone and say posture. Like I said last week, our posture is the attitude towards the way that we approach something 
or someone. And we're dropping on this conversation in verse 21, and Matthew begins by saying, Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Well, where did he depart from? So you've got to understand the context of what's happening here. He gets to Tyre and Sidon, which is the region of Canaan, and he encounters a Canaanite, non-Jewish woman, has this interaction with her in Matthew chapter 15. But where did he depart from? Well, we go back to Matthew 15, verse 1, to the top of the chapter. It says, then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread, on and on it goes. So where was Jesus? Jesus was in Galilee, his kind of region where he's from. The Pharisees, these learned Jewish people, highly studied and academically and intellectually full bottle on Torah and Talmud, left Jerusalem and came and found him in Galilee. Here in Galilee, they came to question Jesus. And when they came and saw Jesus and his disciples, the first thing they took offense was, was the fact that Jesus' disciples were eating bread without first washing their hands. So it was like, <gasps> shock, have you not heard of COVID? <laughs> you need to wash your hands for like 20 seconds and then you're clean. See, the mindset of the day predominantly for the Jews was that if there was an outward demonstration of cleanliness, then you were clean on the inside. So Jesus came and he flipped the script. Jesus became more concerned about what was inside of a man or a woman than he was with what was going on on the outside. And so it really riled the Pharisees as they came to question Jesus. And then as we kept reading the whole interaction in Matthew 15, we get to verse 12, that after the, the, the Pharisees had left and they didn't get what they wanted out of Jesus, the disciples actually said to Jesus, 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 do you know that the disciples were offended when they heard this teaching of yours that was dealing with the heart rather than the outset or the outward behavior of a person? You follow me so far? But how many of you know that Jesus doesn't give a rip? He doesn't really care what the Pharisees thought. They hated the fact that everything Jesus taught was so countercultural. He flipped everything on its head. He rocked their customs and their traditions. They hated that he appeared to have paid no respect to all of the centuries of observance. He almost made a mockery of all their studied research, all their ability to, to recite the, the old Tal Talmud and Torah backwards and frontwards and know all the intricacies of all the laws and the ceremonies and all of the rituals and all of the things. And he, he, so he just basically told them and challenged them about the condition of their heart. From there, he thought, okay, well, no one really likes me here. So from there, he bailed to Tyre and Sidon. That's the context. Makes sense. From there, he walks up all the way up to a land of Canaan. And then we, we get down to Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, sort, of, sort of from 16 onwards, we see that he encounters this Canaanite woman, this non-Jewish woman who has a demon-possessed daughter. And so we open this text with this encounter that Jesus has with this woman. He's just left a conversation with highly religious people. Now he's in Canaan. He's encountering this woman who is non-Jew, should have had no right at all to have any access to him. And in verse 16 onwards, this is the crux of, this is the, the paradox of this text. Jesus, through his whole ministry, spent three years or more of his life trying to convince the Jews that he was a Messiah, and even then they still rejected him and crucified him. Yeah. He now spends five minutes with a Canaanite non-Jewish woman trying to discourage her bat her away, dismiss her, and he can't get rid of her because she brings faith to the fact that he is the Messiah. See the conundrum. 
So here is Jesus. He's dealing with people from two different places coming to encounter him. And when this woman approaches him, Jesus thought, okay, I want to make this a bit of a teaching moment. She comes to him, no right to address him, no right to approach him. She's a Canaanite and she's a woman. And she says, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed. He just thought, bonus, I'm going to play along. Watch this. Hold my communion cup. Right? He says, lady, I'm a Jew and play along with me. I have been called first to the Jews, so I don't really need to waste my time with you. I wouldn't throw bread to little dogs. In other words, you're not worthy of entering into my presence to have an encounter with me. Following me so far. To which this woman says, yes, Lord. She agrees with him. Yes, Lord, I agree with you. But even the little dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. In other words, I'm not worthy of you, Jesus, but I know your grace reaches even an unworthy person like me. So whatever you've got for me today, I'm willing to receive. Bang! Suddenly the tone changes and Jesus smiles and says, this is what I'm trying to teach you, disciples. He says to the woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Man, I need to teach this. The shock of the day was that he allowed Jewish people to leave him offended and a Canaanite woman to leave him encountered. This woman had no right to approach Jesus. That was a scandal of the day. He offended Jewish Pharisees and encountered a Gentile Canaanite woman. I believe there is something very powerful in this text that God wants to teach us today in the lead up to conference and this encounter season. Can I ask my two people to come up and join me on the stage? Please give them a big hand as they come up on the stage. you to come with me on this picture journey. The Jews, the most religious of people, had first access to Jesus. They could have come and encountered Jesus in a powerful way. The Gentile Canaanite woman had no right to come into the presence of Jesus, and yet she encountered Jesus in a powerful way. What was the difference? The difference was the posture that they brought. So, here is the modern application of this text. Sometimes, the most faithless people, the people that question the reality and power of Jesus the most, can often be long-term, church-going Christians. The people that should know better in the presence of God week in, week out can be the people that question the power and the authority of Jesus. We don't question the fact that Jesus died and rose again for us because we're good with that. We're not faithless around that, but we are faithless around all of the other things pertaining to the fact that Jesus heals, Jesus casts out demons, Jesus brings breakthrough, Jesus brings freedom. Come on. 
our struggle as Christians is not in the fact that Jesus died and rose again for us. At times, the longest serving, church-going Christians struggle with everything that happened in the Gospels before he died and everything that happens in the book of Acts after he died. Oh, I don't know about the, 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 the lame walking. I don't know about the blind seeing. I don't know about the mute people talking. I don't know about deaf ears popping open. I don't know about demon-possessed people getting free. We struggle with all of the stuff in the Gospels before he died, and then he died and rose again. Okay, I received that. I'm going to go to heaven. That's enough for me. And then we struggle with the book of Acts, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Getting real quiet now. This woman had no business encountering Jesus, and yet, She brought a faith that opened the heart of Jesus. Sometimes long-term Christians are the ones that struggle the most to understand that Jesus has all power and all authority. Come on, y'all. Sometimes the people that that, that, that should have no right to believe that Jesus has power and authority actually believe. I was in a taxi, in all my travels, I was in a taxi once and I was talking to a Muslim taxi driver. Like, and we were chatting, and, and I, he asked me, what do you do? And we, we, we got to chatting, and he told me he was a Muslim. And I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a church pastor, etc." He goes, oh, you know, we began to talk about Jesus, and he began to talk about Muhammad, etc. And he says this, the Quran doesn't say Muhammad performed miracles. But I know Jesus, your Jesus performed many miracles. That was my best Arabic accent, I don't know. Like, <laughs> he said, but I know your Jesus performed many miracles. And I said, you're right, you're right. My Jesus has all power. He had no right. Like I'm talking to some Christians and they go, oh, Jesus doesn't heal today. I'm talking to long-term, church-going, Bible-reading people that don't believe that demons can flee to set people free. What? People that have no right to access or encounter Jesus. Jesus goes, great is your faith, not because of what you've done, but the posture you bring. I need a resounding amen from somebody today. Both came to Jesus. Both had different outcomes. One postured herself for an encounter by bringing the posture of faith. The others postured themselves for discrediting Jesus with cynicism and doubt and disdain and unbelief and contempt and pride. And You can write a list. The Pharisees wanted to reduce Jesus down to a teacher so they could pit their theology against his. But the Canaanite woman exhorted Jesus as the son of God. Come on, are you out there? Jesus didn't come to the world to win a theological argument. He came to save the world and demonstrate it with signs and wonders. Faith and religion cannot coexist in the one person. And I think that's why intellectuals love religion. Why? Because it's something they can understand. It's something they can explain. That's why religious people are obsessed with rules and customs and traditions and things they can argue with. They don't like experiences because you can't argue with an experience. You can't argue with a healing. You can't argue with a back that's straightened or a leg that's lengthened. You can't argue with a skin disorder that is now, come on. You can't argue with, faith is a great leveler because faith is a posture that you bring, not a paper that you read. I want to encourage you today. The Bible tells us all manner of people, all flesh, everyone can have a posture of faith. Canaanite 
non-Jewish people could have a posture of faith. The Bible tells us that children can have a posture of faith. <gasps> Lepers can have a posture of faith. Blind people, beggars, everyone can have a posture of faith. I've had a chance to travel a fair bit in my life, and I can tell you what, people that don't speak English, that can't even read and write, can at times have greater faith than people that come to church, driven in air-conditioned cars, having all the YouTube, all the concordances, all of the scriptures, come on now. Faith is an incredible leveler. I want to encourage you today in this season, bring a posture of faith. Jesus is not expecting you to bring your best behavior. He's not, don't come to conference with conference church face on. Come with a posture of faith, saying, Jesus, even if it's just crumbs at the table at the altar, come, just come, fill me afresh. I want to encounter you today. Can we give Jesus a big shout of praise? Thank you guys so much. Give these guys a big hand. So now we've set up the premise. We've set up the premise. Like there were some convictions to the posture of encounter being humility, there are some convictions that I want to go through with you today in the posture of encounter being faith. And the first conviction is this, God is my first option, not my last resort. If you bring a posture of faith, that is your conviction. God is my first option, not my last resort. We live in a world where we try everything first and then come to God last. Hello. We're so preconditioned to figure it all out on our own and we rely on the world's methods until the world's methods can't help your marriage. The world's, the world's methods can't help your drug-addicted 19-year-old son. Until our life hits the wall, then we go, oh, oh maybe, um, okay, uh, you know, yeah, yeah maybe we, we've, we've tried all the experts. Um, and then we say dumb things like, oh, well, um, now all that's left to do is pray. <laughs> what were you doing before all of the other things you were doing? This Canaanite woman cries out, says, Lord, help me. Do you know what? If, most, if every Christian adopted that posture, that conviction, that it's God first, not the last resort, Lord, help me. I'll tell you what, our pastoral care teams would have no jobs to do. If you cry out, Lord, help me. See, I think that, that, that one of the greatest contributors to the 21st century way of doing Christianity, of trying to figure it all out on your own first, it, it, it comes from a place of trying to navigate our faith by human endeavor. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. He's not referring to like physically praying 24-7 without stopping. The word pray is to acknowledge your need of Him and to posture yourself in a place of dependency. So posture yourself in a place of dependency on Him without ceasing. In other words, every day that you live, you have a conscious awareness. I need you, God. Lord, help me today in this decision. Lord, would you be behind this today? Lord, would you, if this is the right thing, uh, you know, open the door. If it's not the right thing, shut the door. Holy Spirit, give me wisdom here. It's not about physically praying nonstop. It's about having a mindset without ceasing that I acknowledge my need of you. Are you out there today? Right? And for some of us, we kind of wait to break the glass when it comes to prayer. It's like we're like, like in, an, in an event of an emergency. We're like everything else. Like, like now it's really bad. Break the glass. Man, man, prayer requests get shot in. Everybody, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me, please. This is going down my life, right? We have prayer nights every four weeks. Where are you? Every 
day of your life you can pray without ceasing. But when you bring a posture of faith, it doesn't say, God, you're my last resort. It says, God, you're my first option. You're my first option today. I'm going to pray even before stuff hits the fan. I'm praying. I'm depending on you today. Are you guys out there? Second conviction of the posture of encounter, faith is this. I don't need to see it before I believe it. YK is a good boy at hotmail.com, okay? If you're not happy with that. The kingdom of God is the opposite to the world. The world tells you you need to see it first before you believe it. You need to try before you buy. See it before you believe. In the kingdom of God, we walk by faith and not by You know it, but do you believe it? Hello. Here's the thing about the Canaanite woman. It's safe to assume she's never met Jesus before because this is the first time Jesus actually gone up to Tyre and Sidon. So this was before YouTube. Do you know what I mean? Right now, we advertise a guest speaker. You're all on YouTube. Checking them out. See if he's a good preacher before you register. This was before. She'd never met Jesus before. Never seen him perform a miracle. It's the first time she's coming to see him in the flesh. She tracks him down and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. She walked to him. She came to him by faith. She believed that Jesus was who he said he was before she saw who he said he was. You guys are getting too quiet for me now. Come on. The posture of faith says, Jesus, I believe you're at work even though I can't see it yet. I believe you're at work in my family even though I can't see it yet. I'm going to posture myself and be receptive at conference even though it doesn't look like you're working behind the scenes. People had an encounter with Jesus right throughout Scripture, not because at times they saw him do things firsthand through YouTube or or, or on social media. They, They did so because they believed before they saw. That's the faith that opens the door to encounter. In John chapter 2, it accounts for Jesus' first miracle. Jesus rocks up to a place. Can I have a sweat towel, please? Can you contact backstage for me? Uh, In John chapter 2, there is this um, account of Jesus showing up to a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So this is, Jesus had not performed a single miracle up until now. You got to understand, this is like, like, up until now, he was just a carpenter. All right? All right? Now, there's nothing wrong with carpenters. I I love carpenters. I can't do carpentry. But compared to like a miracle-working son of God, right? He was like the average bear. Makes sense to you. That's the context. He shows up, right? And this is the wedding. And at the wedding, right? Thank you so much. Give Maddie a big hand. Wonderful. Really appreciate it. Don't forget next time. He shows up. His mom was at the wedding. So we can assume that it was a relative of some kind, right? And like, Mary knew that he was the son of God because she carried him for nine months immaculately conceived. Mothers know. She said, as soon as Jesus gets there, Jesus, Jesus, they run out of wine. Do something, son. Like, seriously. I reckon Jewish moms and Asian moms have a lot in common. It's like, son, do something. When he gets there, he says this. There were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus says to the servants, fill the water pots with water. Now, if this was in Australia, the first thing that would have happened was all of the servants would have got together and go, who is this, who is this guy? Who is he? I don't know. He's a carpenter. Well, why is he asking us to fill wine pots 
with water. Does he have any idea six water pots of stone? That's like 20 or 30 gallons a piece. Like, does he, does he know how many trips to the well outside of town we need to take? Right? That's, that's like six water pots, about 25 gallons or about 100 liter water pots. Does he understand how much work it's going to take? Have you seen this guy do anything special or any miracles yet? No. He's just a carpenter. He's just... Mary's boy. Posture of faith says, I don't need to see it before I believe it. The servants were the real heroes of John chapter 2. And I get it. We live in a very evidence-based society. Science has conditioned us to base our worldviews on what we can see, not on what cannot be seen. But the kingdom of God is completely different to that. And I want to stir in your heart again that we need to bring the posture of faith back into the people of faith. Fancy that. We actually need to restore faith back into the house of God. Fancy that. The Muslims can't be out-faithing the Christians. I get it that if seeing is believing, then not seeing makes for very hard believing. I get it. But you know, the greatest enemy of faith is not doubt. What doubt does? Doubt just fights and wrestles with faith. How many of you like some days you, you are full of faith, but then you got doubt as well? Like for something you believe in, and like you feel like the, the, the wrestle. You know, some days you're, you're really you're doubting, and the other days there's great faith again. And that's what the Bible talks about strengthening your faith, right? So, so doubt only ever wrestles with faith. But do you know what makes faith completely irrelevant? Certainty. Whilst doubt wrestles with faith, certainty just makes faith irrelevant. You don't even need it. And that's how so many of us want to live our Christian faith. God does his best work in uncertainty. You don't need to see it before you believe it. Come on, somebody shout amen. You don't need to see it before you believe it. It's an in our Christian life. We aspire to have certainty. We want certainty on everything. Right? Hey, just, you know, there's, there's great gifts on your life. Do you, do you, have you considered serving Jesus? Like, have, have you considered, you know, like I see you're great with, on, on camera, Matt. You know, oh, sure. Like, what does that involve? Yeah. Yeah. What time do I need to come? How many hours a week do you need from me? Yeah. Yeah. We ask for certainty on everything. Right. Right. And we call ourselves people of faith. Yeah. 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 We don't need to see it before we believe it, because that is a conviction of faith. Come on, I need a resounding amen from somebody today. Third, conviction. Oh my gosh, look at the time. Third conviction. This is a good one. My faith is measured in duration, not necessarily in size. Some of you are going, what is he talking about? Last week's sermon was better. You need to catch this. There's a lot of misunderstanding when we talk about faith that... For God to do incredible things in your life, you need to partner it with great faith, great being great in magnitude, great in size. It's got to be spectacular. It's got to be honed through years of traveling the world as an evangelist, seeing signs and wonders. That's when God can really come through for you. That's not the kind of faith in the Bible. Do you understand that? Matthew chapter 17, whenever you, whenever you see faith 
in Scripture, and the way Jesus tries to teach it or bring it in an accessible way, he often talks about faith in a very unspectacular manner. He says this in verse 14, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples, after all of that, said, Oh, Jesus, can we have a word with you, please, um, in private? They said to him, oh, Jesus, why can we not cast out the demon like, like, like you did? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith, that's ginormous, like a traveling evangelist-sized faith. No, it says, if you have a faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer. And by fasting. I just want to just, just teach this for a moment. Is this okay? Yeah. Here at these disciples, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, Jesus, why can't we do what you did? Have the power and the authority. Like, like, what's going on there? Do we not have like the ginormous faith that you've got? Is that why we haven't got power and authority? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. All that you need, you need to understand, in the kingdom of God, all that is required is the faith the size of a mustard seed. So in a Jewish's mind, in terms of talking scale of measurement, there is nothing smaller metaphorically, than a mustard seed. So anything less than that is zero. Do you understand that? Right? So if all that a person needs is the faith the size of a mustard seed to move mountains, this is Jesus trying to give them a teaching moment here, comparatively. All that you need to have is just a ground level, minimum standard of faith, and that can move mountains. Then why could you not, in that instance, set this young boy free that was severely demon possessed, right? What was Jesus teaching? He was teaching them that faith is not great because of the size of magnitude. Great faith in the Bible is defined by duration or persistence. Because by the time they get to Matthew chapter 17, they're already seeing the Matthew 15 account of this woman's daughter being set free by demons. They're already multiplied fish and bread out of their hands. They've had faith. They've had faith in this encounter. They've had faith in this encounter. But in this encounter, they stopped having faith. Oh, you guys aren't catching this. When you bring a posture of faith, it's important to know that Jesus is not expecting you to have a ginormous, spectacular faith. He's just asking you to continue to have faith today that you did yesterday. We're so accustomed to having five-minute faith moments. And if you don't come through for me like a microwave oven and beep when it's done, I'm out of here. We expect an instant Jesus, but it doesn't work that way. Your faith is not measured by the size, but by the persistence. Think about Matthew chapter 14, right? By the time we get to Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, they couldn't cast the demon out, right? Peter had already walked on water. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water, Matthew 14. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Stop there and think about how ridiculously amazing this moment is. I've never seen anyone walk on water. Peter walked on water. And then verse 30, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little Faith, hold up a second. That is a bit unfair, isn't it, Jesus? 
This is the only guy in human history ever recorded to have walked on water. He had great faith. The word you of little actually means brief. If you could bring it to a modern translation, Jesus would say, Peter, you of brief faith. You had a minimum standard of faith to step out of the boat, most of your disciples had like zero, your friends had zero. And you walked on water. You had faith for five steps, but you didn't for the sixth, and the seventh, and the eighth. You of brief faith. I think it's time for the church to have some faith stamina again. It, it, it's, it's, it's like our spiritual forefathers of yesteryears prayed for years in back rooms for great awakenings and great revivals. Can you imagine Evan Roberts having a five-minute faith? Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Send revival to Wales. Uh, nothing. All right. Back to watching Netflix. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? John and Charles Wesley on their knees for 10 minutes. And then, oh, a bit tired now. Oh, oh, okay. They were on their knees for years. It's time to restore not a ginormous, spectacular faith, just a bit more of a persistent faith, a bit more of an enduring faith. He didn't come through for you last year, but maybe we get back on our knees again this year. He hasn't come through for you for four months. Maybe it's time to not just have a brief faith. Because our faith conviction is that it's not measured by size, but duration. Can we give Jesus a big shout of praise today? The posture of faith that opens the door to encounter will always be met with unbelief, doubt, cynicism. Even right now, as I'm preaching, people watching online, the same cog sticking, oh, it sounds good. It sounds like it's come out of Scripture. It sounds like biblical, but you don't quite believe it. You don't quite believe it. What a tragedy to stand as Hayden did. Church going, but never really walking in faith. Consigning all that we know of God to our capacity to understand and see. What a limited life. I'd much rather come like the Canaanite woman saying, Jesus even if it's just a few crumbs from your table, even if it's just whatever it is that you've got for me, whatever, whatever fresh manner that you've got for me today, I believe that you are the Son of God. Suddenly the tone changes. Jesus says, God, daughter, great is your faith. My prayer is when the Lord returns and when he asks the question, who shall I find who will have faith on the earth? My prayer for us the Nations Church will be counted amongst them. Can we give Jesus a big shout of praise? Thanks for listening to the Nations Church podcast. For more info, please visit nationschurch.com.